Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to our podcast, Agents of Change. I'm your host for this episode, Laman Tash. In this episode, we will delve further into the indigenous roots of restorative approaches, exploring how these approaches are practiced within their originating communities, their intended purposes and outcomes. Additionally, we will discuss how various institutions, including higher education, can learn from and incorporate these approaches to their advantage. I would like to thank our special guest, who is a member of Mi'kmaq, and I apologize if I don't pronounce it exactly right, Mi'kmaq Nation in Canada, for coming and talking to us on all these topics. Thank you for being here. Well, Alan, thank you so much for having me today. Let's start our conversation with origins of practices that are actually later became known as restorative practices. My first question is straightforward. Which practices of indigenous communities of Canada have left to what today is known as restorative practices? How have they been implementing them for hundreds of years? In which situations, with what purposes and outcomes? If you could please just give us a little background for history, all these practices, all these approaches, everything that is known today as restorative, but have rich history in what indigenous people have been doing for so long. Yes, absolutely. I'm very happy to share because as part of our beliefs and our traditions, it's truly about oral storytelling and sharing of knowledge. It's not about retaining knowledge. It's about allowing others to have that information and share that. So the term restorative uh, justice, restorative approach, restorative model wasn't a term that was used by Indigenous communities, particularly in Mi'kmaq and by the Mi'kmaq people. Originally, we used uh, concepts of customary law and talking circles as ways to engage our communities. I think if we go back in time, back to when we had, and we still have grand councils, chief and councils, leaders of our community, they would engage in talking circles as a mechanism to have conversations about issues that mattered, even simple day-to-day stuff, or if there was any conflict of how to address those. And these circles would expand into community as well. So there would be community circles where elders would be there and give their guidance, leaders would be there, community members. If there was an incident that happened where someone was harmed or a family was harmed, that would be discussed and negotiated through these talking circles and the practices that came with it that were holistic in nature in a sense that the community would hold space, a safe space for these conversations to happen, allow space for everyone involved to voice their needs allow for processes of outcomes to be negotiated 
and levels of accountability from elders that I've spoken with. Some of the teachings were that in traditional talking circles, every single person there takes some level of accountability for the harm that's been caused if we're having a circle about a harm. And everyone takes a little piece of responsibility and everyone takes a little piece of what they can do to help remedy that. So this notion of it's not a us versus them, it's not let's punish one person, but how can we collectively and holistically work together to address problems in our communities? Thank you. And this seems to be, when we talk about restorative practices, it really seems to be this is what was transferred, right? The the, everything that is known today as restorative practices, a collective approach of relationship building. You, you mentioned harm. You mentioned specific situations where in the situations where harm happened, communities will come together and will assume collective responsibility and collective accountability and collective moving forward approach. What would be some of those situations? If you can give maybe examples of specific situations where these approaches were applied and used. Yeah, I think if we just go to basics, let's say someone was physically harmed, either they were hit or some other type of physical harm inflicted on somebody's body, there would be a call to bring parties together, to bring communities together, and to have those conversations. And one piece that I think is really important to highlight too is when we're in circle, everyone is equal. Unlike the criminal justice system where it's a pyramid model where, you know, it's kind of a top-down top-down hierarchy. However, in a circle because it is a round shape with no ending, no beginning, and it's on an equal playing field, that is such a central part to these teachings is that everyone comes to that table equally, you know, whether you're the person that's caused harm, or whether you're a community member or someone else at the table, we all have that same level of expectation of respect, and giving respect and giving voice, and also allowing for listening. One of the elders who passed away, uh, he's been passed away now for I would say about 10 years, he used to always tell me this before circles, he said, we we have two ears and one mouth, and we should always listen twice as much as we speak. And that's exceptionally true in our talking circles, because when someone is sharing their story or their feelings, it may stir up emotions in us, and we may want to respond, but we have to have that patience and humility and respect and honesty to have that patience to allow that person to share what they need and for us to truly listen, to actively listen, to truly think about what they are trying to convey to us and then to process that and to find helpful, meaningful ways to respond instead of just responding instantly and maybe saying something that you regret. And I also wanted to bring to the equation too that when we have circles, it is part of ceremony, ultimately, because with circles, typically there are smudging ceremonies that would happen before a circle would start. And smudging ceremony is sacred. It is a spiritual cleansing process where we use an abalone shell or a different type of shell, and we have dried medicines in that shell. So we use tobacco Ideally, loose leaf tobacco, 
as unprocessed as possible at its purest form, ideally. And that is honoring medicine, a thank you medicine, thanking the creator for bringing us here today, thanking our ancestors for guiding us, thanking the land, the skies, Mother Nature, Mother Earth, Turtle Island. So we have our tobacco in, in the smudge. And the second medicine is sage. So sage, there's different types of sage. There's white buffalo sage, um, and then there's other sages as well. That is the most commonly used, and that purifies. So um, sage cleanses, purifies, removes uh, anything negative or harmful. And then that kind of goes hand in hand with the next medicine, which is sweetgrass. And sweetgrass is pretty incredible because it only grows where salt and fresh water meet. It doesn't grow anywhere else. So it's only in very specific locations where a river and an ocean will meet is that's where it will grow. And when you pick sweetgrass, there, you have to be very careful because there's a lot of grass that imitates sweetgrass. But if it has like that purple hue and shine at the very stem and you could smell a bit of sweetness to it, then you know you have the right thing. So sweetgrass is used also to help purify. So it will take anything that's negative and help, in a sense, sanitize it or cleanse it. And it works very well with sage. And then our final medicine, and these are the four core, but there are other medicines as well, is cedar. And cedar is quite commonly found. You can find cedar bushes almost everywhere. And cedar is a protection medicine. So I was always taught by my um, my elders that if you see a cedar bush, pick a little piece of cedar and put it in your pocket, put it in your shoe. You can even put it in your pillowcase to help protect you in your dreams. So all those medicines come together and you have a little bit of each in the smudge bowl and you light that. And typically we use an eagle feather. And again, an eagle is also incredibly meaningful and sacred as eagle flies highest to creator and takes our prayers up there. So some people will use an eagle feather, but if you don't have an eagle feather, you can use another type of feather, or you may not have a feather at all, that's still okay. And so in these circles, usually our elders would come prepared with the medicines and the offerings, and they would start this smudging ceremony, burning the medicines and smudging everyone that's there. And this, when we smudge, the smoke is lit, and when you go to the smudge bowl, it's almost like you're washing yourself. So you put the smoke over your head, over your eyes, so we see good things, over our ears, so we hear good things, over our mouth, so we say good things, into our heart to allow love and happiness into our heart. And then you gently use your hands and push the smoke down your body, down your arms, down your legs, down your tummy, and anywhere that you feel pain or anything that's not quite right in your body, you can put extra smoke there, extra medicines there to help heal. And this always helps us start off in a really good way by taking away any of that negative energy and just allowing us to start in a, in a good way. So it, it is really important that, you know, restorative practices today, I feel have lost some of those cultural and ceremonial pieces where as you know, in indigenous communities, that is still very strong. And that is how historically it has been run. And that is integral in the process of having these holistic, restorative, customary law practices. Thank you. Actually, some of the things I like taking a moment to think before responding, 
uh, evaluating your situation. I'm thinking about emotional intelligence, social intelligence, right? Active listening. All these skills that today are a part of any training in any institution were actually practiced hundreds of years ago, maybe under different names, but with the same purposes. So they were a part of those communities before they became parts of all these trainings and books in modern world, which is fascinating. And the, the phrase that you said, we have two years, two ears and one mouth, right? We have, if we listen more before we speak, it if we actually pay attention and we hear other people, that will make a huge difference. So again, for me, it's fascinating how a lot of things that are so popular today in business world, right, everywhere, have been already practiced thousands of years ago, probably. So thank you for bringing it up. When we talk about these practices, just before we move to another question, I wonder if there were situations where these practices were more successful or if there were situations where they were not applied. For example, grave cases as, I don't know, murder, rape, things like that. Or were there situations, I probably should ask it as an open-ended, where that will be no application or situations where these practices were especially successful? Well, when we think of the most serious crimes of, you know, murder, rape, any type of abuse towards a minor or even our elders, circles were still and are still utilized because they still at the core have the value. In essence, we are still all human beings, regardless of what has occurred. But I do want to note that, you know, success can vary. Every circle is unique. And everything that is shared in circle is sacred. So can we say for certain that every circle has been successful? No. But can we say that there's truly benefit to the circle? Absolutely. And sometimes the circle isn't just about resolving a conflict. Sometimes the circle is about healing. So for example, if it is like the most heinous crime, maybe it's the victim that wants the community to be involved to help them heal. Maybe that's that's what's happening. Maybe it's not about the accountability. Maybe it's just a healing piece. So circles can be utilized in different forms and different mechanisms to suit the needs of the collective, of the community, of the individual, of of the situation. And there is another piece too, where at times communities have practiced and still sometimes very seldomly practice this notion of community banishment. So this is the most ultimate form of of a way to deal with harms that have been so atrocious that it's just no longer safe or no longer feasible for somebody to still be in that community. So sometimes if there's been grave offenses create that have happened or occurred against a child or children in a community, they may take that person and, and they may have a circle, they may not, or they may just say, look, this, this person is no longer allowed in our community. So it is sort of that last resort, ultimate type of way to support the collective, ensure safety of the collective. And this kind of reminds me, it's a form of using isolation, social isolation as a punishment, which is widely used in modern societies. So it kind of, for me, goes back to that. It's how you isolate those people whom you consider as harmful to the community. 
Yeah. And it's not so much about the concept of punishment as it is about the concept of accountability and allowing them to work through what they need to work through independently of the community and also to keep the community safe. So there are instances where people are banished temporarily. So maybe for a few years or whatever the time frame is or permanently. I do know instances where people have been banished and now they have been allowed to return to their community because they've demonstrated to their community that they have changed and they've grown and they've been able to kind of work through whatever they needed to work through to be a better person and no longer be a risk of those harms. I'm curious, when they are banished, is there a new work that is done with them? I I understand that the purpose is to protect community, but when this banishment is happening place because to protect community, is anybody working with these people? Like you said, they're left to resolve these issues on their own. Is there any, I don't know, participation, any assistance? I'm, I'm just curious. There are supports. And even if somebody is banished from community, they are they can still have a circle. So maybe it means accessing, accessing supports from, you know, an urban community or a different community. They could still be working with an elder. They could still be working with family. They could still be working with supports or agencies or other resources. Circles can still happen. It just looks a little different. And that's okay. They still have that right and that ability to access the circle because ultimately you know the circle is for everyone no one really truly can be denied that it's it's just such a process of humanity ultimately and you made a good point you said that circles also serve different purposes right some of them are problem solving some of them are for accountability, but sometimes they're just for healing. And healing is something that everybody who involves in conflict or those situation usually involves. So different purposes, different meanings, but still that communal approach. Now, if we think about those practices and now if we transition them to what is today known as modern restorative practices, what was that transition? What are similarities and what is applicability of those practices in outside of the indigenous communities? If you think about wider institutions, everyday life and specifically higher education. So when I think about the work that circles do and this holistic approach, customary law, restorative approach, whatever word you want to label it as, I view it as a, a frame of mind, a way of being, a way of life, a way to navigate through the world. So it's not just it's not just you show up for a circle and that's that. It's how you interact with people, how you communicate with them. Are we actively listening to what they're sharing? Are we respecting them? Are we giving them space to share? Are we sharing our needs? So these things can happen even just every, I just wanted to make it clear that, you know, these concepts are good for everyone. And, you know, even our smallest interaction in our day of life, you know, if we're, we're cooking with someone or we're going shopping or if we're driving, these principles can be used in all of those ways by everyone. But when we think about more specifically about higher education and the need for conflict resolution and conflict prevention, I think these traditions and these practices can really support and help transition our institutions 
to a better way. This is not to, it won't be a solution to resolve everything because I do want to note that institutions themselves are colonial in nature and are structured in harmful and problematic ways. So there are some things that unless we destructure and reorganize how they're constructed, we can't solve everything. However, there is place for in the current system. So when it comes to institutions, you know, conflict does occur because conflict is ultimately natural. We all have conflict, whether it's with ourselves, with others. So when those conflicts arise, it can be problematic because institutions, especially higher education, universities, or other types of settings have a lot of policies and a lot of personnel to say, you have to do this or you can't do that. And that's not always helpful. It makes it become almost like the criminal justice system, adversarial, like don't talk to this person, you're not allowed to come here, or you'll lose your job, or whatever the case may be. And this can be, you know, sometimes necessary. I'm not taking that uh, away from anything. But there is space and there is use for bringing in these practices to areas of conflict within institutions to say, okay, what's happened here? What are everyone's needs? How can we bring them together? How can we have a conversation to support everyone at the table so that everyone has a voice, everyone listens, and that we work collectively to find a solution? And how do we move forward? Because, you know, maybe banning someone from going to a certain part of the building or firing them, you know, isn't isn't always the best solution. And in my opinion, shouldn't be the first solution. It can be there if needed, but let's explore other options first. So we have seen this happen in some institutions. Obviously, this area does need to grow. And I always encourage institutions to try to incorporate as much as possible these practices and have people and have departments and structures in place to facilitate and support these processes where people can come and say, look, this is what I'm struggling with. This is a conflict that I'm having. How can we navigate through this? And giving people information, giving them knowledge, because knowledge is ultimately power. So if we give people knowledge, they have the power to make their own choice that suits them and their needs, and maybe more collectively, the needs of the community, maybe of the classroom, maybe of that department, and the institution as a whole. And then there's the flip side too of conflict prevention. So talking circles and having this holistic customary law restorative frame doesn't mean you have to jump in when something goes bad. Like I said before, this is a way of life, a way of being, something you use in your simplest of interactions of how you greet someone, how you have a conversation on the phone. This speaks to the fact that it can be used for prevention as well. When you bring in new staff, maybe have those talking circles and find ways to say, you know, how can we support your needs? How can we navigate through this together? You know, when students are coming in, also giving them that information of being like, this is a resource that you can use or offering community talking circles, uh, allowing space for these practices to flourish before there's even anything that's happened. You know, I think that's, that's where the true beauty can, of this can be 
uh, is just making this way of life and incorporating it. And, you know, I do want to say too, that it's not, I don't claim to have all the right answers and I don't claim to have all the right knowledge. I'm just merely passing on knowledge that was shared to me by elders and community members and through my own experiences. And, you know, there's going to be differences. Some elders have different perspectives. Some community members have different perspectives. So this isn't to take away from anyone else's teachings or knowledge or experience. This is just simply to add more information to the collective and to use in the best way that they can. And thank you. We appreciate you actually coming and sharing it with us because I feel like there is a lot of organizations, right, uh, which talk or train in restorative practices, but understanding their roots and understanding how it was originally practiced and understanding its authentic meanings is very important. So thank you for coming and sharing it with us. You mentioned in uh, your previously today that this practices is more about state of mind, right, an approach to life. And this is where their preventive power lays, because once we adopt it, maybe some situations, some problematic situations will never arise. So if you, you, if you maybe a little bit touch upon that. Okay, yes. So again, like the preventative beauty, and again, just the way of being these processes, this ceremony, this way of being this approach, just is strips everything down to humanity and just ultimately being a good person and being having that collective holistic mindset. And it can be crucial for if it's used in the right way, in terms of conflict prevention, we can, there's endless possibilities for the things that could be prevented, the harms that could be potentially caused. Because if we think about conflict, conflict typically is, you know, can be miscommunication or a misunderstanding or interpreting what someone has said, going by their tone or their voice or the words they chose. So a lot of conflict in general is really about miscommunication. So allowing space for these circles or even this way of being, of communicating more holistically and having these mindfulness of, of the teachings allows for us to get ahead of any type of mis- miscommunication that could lead to conflict where people can clear the air or confirm something. If they've, if they've heard the other person say something and they, it doesn't sit quite well with them, they can say, you know, is this what you're, am I right that you are telling me that it's this? And the person can, you know, just you ask those clarifying questions just to confirm what really was their position? Where are they standing? So I think if it's used in such a way, these practices, and if people truly embody them, could really support our world. But again, you know, higher institutions from a good significant portion of the conflict that does arise. Because not all the conflict is extreme. Not everything is, you know, murder and all those serious things. A lot of conflict really, especially when we look at institutions, is, you know, conflict between coworkers, conflict between a faculty and a student, or fa- conflict between students. A lot of it is just, you know, maybe it's it's words or behavior or 
little actions that have happened. So, you know, if we can get ahead of that, which we can very simply, it could really help reduce that. And again, it's not like it's going to solve everything and prevent everything from happening. But I'm sure if it's used right, we can at least reduce that as much as we can. And that's that's actually very empowering to know. As you said, a lot of tensions that are happening could be sometimes prevented just with a switch in how we communicate or what assumptions we put into communication. That can be very empowering. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your understanding. Thank you for being here. Well, Alan, thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share this knowledge with you. Again, I just wanted to point out the fact that this is knowledge that was passed on to me, but it doesn't mean that this is the only way. It doesn't mean that every piece of knowledge that I've shared is the only way of doing things. There are other teachings out there. There's more information to explore and Just seek out that information and keep your mind open. I'm just here to help share that teaching, share the knowledge, and keep the oral traditions of story sharing and passing down our values and our traditions alive. This is Lamon Tosh, your host for this episode of Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.